Hello, listeners, and welcome to Closing Time, the podcast that provides an inside look at the world of healthcare startups and venture capital. I'm Hallie Tecco. And I'm Michael Esquivel. Each episode, we get the privilege of meeting entrepreneurs at the forefront of healthcare innovation. You get to eavesdrop on pitches that are reshaping healthcare from founders daring to think differently. So pull up a chair and join us as we journey into the future of healthcare, one pitch at a time. Hello, listeners, and welcome to Closing Time, where your co-hosts, Hallie Tecco and Michael Esquivel. Today, we're talking to AWELL's founder and CEO, Thomas Vande Castile. AWELL is a low-code platform used by clinical and product teams to design clinical workflows and integrate them into their tech stack. Thomas, welcome. Thanks, both. Uh, it's an honor. Why don't you just start by giving us the elevator pitch? Well, you, you actually just gave the elevator pitch, right? So I'll, I'll, I'll maybe. So thanks, thanks for that. I'll I'll maybe spin it a bit differently. So so Able is basically a, a DevOps DevOps platform for care processes. Um, and so what, why why would a DevOps platform for care processes matter, right? Why why is it important? Well, the thing is that in um and you know we'll, we'll jump from macro to really micro stuff here uh, for a second and and I know that this topic has been discussed a lot uh, on the podcast already but we're in this gigantic shift from a fee for service world through to a world where um, care providers are taking on risk and so on a macro level in in a fee for service world there is really you know no incentive to to, to be to become more productive more efficient uh, basically to drive better outcomes and so. Um, what we've seen is that in, in this once in multiple generations shift, the, the name of the game is changing for care providers. All of a sudden, they have to compete for outcomes. They have to compete for you know a better care team experience, uh, better workflow for their care teams, etc. And so that means that creating or thinking about your patient journey or your clinical workflow once and then implementing it and letting, letting it be for years is just, is just not the way to go anymore, right? And so... What you will need as a, as, as a healthcare provider, not, not just to survive, but to, to thrive and ultimately to win, is to accelerate the pace of change. And we've seen that, obviously, in, in software development, that's where the connotation with DevOps comes from. Um, Ten years ago, DevOps was, was a nice to have, right? But now it's mission critical. If you're not doing DevOps properly as a software team, you're at a competitive disadvantage versus teams who are doing DevOps properly because they can release software faster, they can fix bugs faster, they just deliver higher quality software at faster pace. And so the the big bet that AWOL is making is that care processes are actually very similar to software, right? There is, there's new evidence that gets published. There's a new quality metric you need to collect for your payer. There is, uh, you know, your patient engagement uh, metrics are not what they should be. Uh, there's like a thousand reasons why these care flows, these care processes need to continuously evolve, but they don't because of the current tooling. And AILO wants to be that tool that drives this care ops revolution, right? The DevOps for care processes revolution. Yeah. yeah. So we have to know how you stumbled <laughs> upon this this problem here in the US, given that you're not even yet on the ground here in the US yourself. So it's, it's a global problem, right? So... Um, you know, on a global level, every payer, whether it's the you know a system that resembles the US with with all of your myriad payer you know phenotypes, or the ones in Europe where you have like like single payer, whereas the government you know paying uh, for healthcare and, and basically ultimately uh, a lot of it comes from everybody's tax uh, dollars or euros or whatever. 
uh, currency you're paying your taxes in, um, they actually they want to see more bang for their healthcare buck. That's ultimately for them what it's about, and they're not getting that in a fee for service world, right? And so. I know that there's a lot of clinicians listening, and I think this caveat has been made already. I'll make it again, right? No individual clinician has malicious intent, right? Everybody's in in, in the business to provide good care and, and to take care of their patients, but just on a macro level, fee-for-service just is, is, is wrongly incentivized, and, and, and that's the problem. And so with the shift, payers just want to see more bang for their healthcare buck. And uh, and so it is it is absolutely a global thing. So I, I didn't need to be in the US to recognize that this shift is coming and that it would need new tooling to um, yeah to serve people who want to do that. Amazing. Well, you know, Thomas, uh, congrats. This isn't your first rodeo. You're a serial entrepreneur. You, you've done this a few times before. So what inspired you to get into healthcare this time? Yeah, so so I, I'm basically I'm an I'm an architect by education. I never wanted to be one because I, I was too impatient to uh, wait ten years between drafting a plan and seeing a building. Um, You're impatient, but you came to healthcare. Exactly, exactly. The joke I sometimes make is that that's just bi- destiny biting me in the ass because my my patience is being tested way more yes. in healthcare than than probably how it would have been tested in 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 being an architect. So, touche. Now, the after architecture school, I um, so this was uh, after architecture school, early days of e-commerce uh, to, back in two thousand six, two thousand seven, and and you know I basically founded an e-commerce company. Uh, I had some you know some technical chops, and I saw where you know how e-commerce was actually going to be a once in multiple generations generations shift over you know retail. And so founded an e-commerce company, had, had a lot of fun doing that, but I ultimately sold that after a couple of years. In hindsight, I should have put all of that money on Amazon. I would have, I would have been independently rich. <laughs> uh, in this case, I just, I just sold the activities, you know, cl- closed off the business. And, um, but what had really passionated me during those e-commerce days was to understand and optimize the customer journey. So you had, you know, different channels which customers came through these websites and then they went through different, you know, funnels and steps, and ultimately bought something or subscribed to a newsletter. And then they came back after two weeks, or they didn't come back at all, etc. And so, what had really interested me was to understand how, you know, what are these different customer journeys that 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 these at that point in time customers went through, and how can we optimize them for the outcomes that matter to that business. And so, for a while, I was a, a freelance strategic consultant for like you know bigger bigger brands like you know uh, Audi and Volkswagen and Nestle, helping helping them optimize their customer journeys. At the time, I had really no understanding of of healthcare. I had had almost no um, you know uh, I, I had I had not had any interaction with healthcare that was meaningful for me as a patient whatsoever. Um, but then I kind of stumbled upon it um, through my brother and understood that healthcare worked in a very different way than what we were doing at that point in time, right? Healthcare was not about, you know, organizing around target outcomes that matters to either the organization or to the customer, but that it was this fee-for-service world. And so for me, this was a very big, uh, you know, eye-opening experience. Uh started to ask a lot of questions, reading up a lot of, uh, you know, uh, a lot of things around value-based healthcare, and realized that 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 the shift was, you know, in, impending, and that this was this would this would basically uh, create a gigantic opportunity for for new tooling and for new, you know, software to help those teams. 
Well, I have to say some of my favorite founders in healthcare have been folks who have come to the U.S. Um, from, like Sammy Inkinen, he's from mm-hmm. Finland, Gio Colella from, um, from Italy. And I think bringing some key learnings from other systems um, and having, you know, growing up in a healthcare system that looks fundamentally different for, from the U.S. healthcare system. I think there's a lot that we have to learn and there's a lot that you can bring. So we're excited. Um, as you told us earlier, before we started recording that you will be moving to the U.S. Um, and we're really excited for that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so <clears throat> as you can see in my background for, for the people listening, they cannot see it, but I'm, I'm currently still in the international space station uh, this is actually my my house in Belgium. I I live in the <laughs> I work in the pantry because I have four kids and they have taken up all the rooms, and so this means dad calls from literally from the cupboard. But uh, I will be relocating to uh, a different place soon, end of next week, relocating to LA. Yeah. yeah. Amazing. So switching gears a little bit, tell us about your ideal customer and what that looks like. Yeah, this is the, this is the big ICP question, right? Um, so uh, the, 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 there actually there is no ICP in healthcare, right? Um, one because because it's so fragmented. And, and by the way, we we serve customers in in uh, Europe, in UK, and in the US, which means that uh, there are there are different you know really different customer profiles that we serve. This is also a bit tied to our uh, to our uh, chronology. Obviously, we we basically started as a bootstrapped company in in Belgium, selling to very traditional hospitals like regional regional you know health health system hospital types brick and mortar everything that everybody knows about a hospital and currently our our biggest customer segment are tech enabled services providers mainly in the US so these are really you know the new kinds of customers that popped up thanks to the pandemic and that are really you know uh, aiming to take almost a blank slate approach to healthcare and are saying you know we're going to do things differently virtual first and so we basically serve both of these you know, customer profiles that are that are that that at first sight are pretty far away from each other on the spectrum, but but actually have a lot more in common than 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 you might think. Okay, and this is a SaaS business. You you price it. Um, can you tell us a little bit about absolutely? Pricing? So uh, we, we want to be part of the solution, not part of the problem. So we we price based on how our customers use our platform. So how the platform basically works is you you first start by designing your care flows in our in our no code studio right that that's step 1 once they are designed you publish those flows and that and and from that point onwards you start enrolling patients in those flows the the enrolling can happen through many different ways you can you can send us csv files you can send us hl7 or fire feeds adt feeds right you can you can let people, you know, manually start flows by clicking a button in the EMR or a button on a website of, of a tech-enabled services provider that says, you know, find out about our service and, and take the intake survey. So all, all of those are basically ways to start enrolling patients in those flows. And our customers pay AWOL for every active patient in a given month. And so that means for every activity that we have orchestrated, whether that's like uh, making a form available, sending out a message, running a calculation, evaluating some logic uh, in a decision support flow, writing something back to DMR. Uh, so all of those granular actions, every time something gets orchestrated, we make that patient uh, billable. Now, the, I think the, the good thing about our pricing model is that we, we don't punish you from orchestrating multiple activities. So if, you know, if Michael is enrolled in a care flow, you know, today in January and he has like a million activities orchestrated for him because he's, a, you know, 
a chronic patient with you know a lot of stakeholders involved and a lot of multidisciplinary activities that need to be uh, performed, you know Michael will cost as much as as for example Halley, who will just you know fill in an intake form and then the very next activity for Halley is for example in February. And so we don't punish uh, for uh, using our system and orchestrating a lot of care activities. That's really important. Yeah, in fact, you're you're encouraging that, right? Encouraging that kind of engagement with the platform. Absolutely. Well, I was going to ask kind of um, what this looks like in terms of your revenue and the, the amount that you're seeing customers generally pay month over month. Yeah, so our, our ACVs, um, so at the, at the low end, and, and this is because, so our ACVs, uh, uh, average ACVs kind of dropped in the last year and a half because we started selling to these virtual first care providers in the US as well. Generally, you know, early stage businesses, some of these are venture backed, others are self-funded uh, and bootstrapped. And so we basically made it possible for them to to get started with AWOL at relatively low ACV. So the lowest ACV is, uh, is 20K at uh, at the moment. Um, and uh, that goes up to well into the well into the six figures. And so we're, we're currently aiming for, uh, so we, we basically signed one of the largest US primary care uh, providers uh, over the holidays. Uh, which is Congrats. amazing. That's a, that's a very big milestone for us. Uh, we we can't name the name officially, uh, unfortunately, but this is really huge for us. And so we're um, this is obviously going to evolve into a pretty big contract over time if we do our things well. Yeah. So so Thomas, what what does the competitive landscape look like for the company? And and you know how do you think about that in terms of your go to market strategy here? So the biggest competitor for us and the one that we encounter most, uh, both, you know, in Europe, in, U- in UK and in the US is um, is basically the PDF and, and the Word file, <laughs> right? So care processes today are written down and, and designed in tools like Word, Google Docs, Miro, Lucidcharts, uh, Microsoft Visio. So th- those are the tools where these care processes live today, right? And so when we come in, we need to we need to convince these stakeholders that by by you know bringing these flows into a well and then and then us orchestrating them because very often you know those care processes that are designed in those you know in those written out protocols in text or in you know flowchart format are not really operationalized right everybody says you know we are following them and we are training our workforce and we are you know, sending the right things to the right patient at the right time. But ultimately, what we see again and again is that, that that is not the case, right? Nobody can actually show that what is being what is actually being operationalized is, is the same as what was designed, right? And so we have to convince them that they need to leave behind those diagramming softwares, start building in, in AOL, and then and then orchestrating with us, and, and th- that that is that is in itself a pretty formidable competitor, right? Because it's it's we're, we're fighting inertia, yeah. and that is um, and that is always one of the most difficult forces to fight in um, in healthcare. How did twenty twenty three look for you guys in terms of growth? So twenty twenty three was for us um, a very interesting year because we 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 are a venture backed company and we have to uh, we have we have to raise money to stay alive currently still. So we actually, you know, one of the ways our company runs is we 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 make you know what you what you call decision pages for for every almost every decision unless it's like a you know five minute decision between two people but every time that it's an important decision we make a decision page we write out you know all of the reasoning why we should you know go for a specific recommendation and this is one of the most important decision pages we wrote in 2023. Interesting. Was do we remain a venture backed company because. Um, 
as 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 you know as well uh macroeconomics changed for vc backed companies from 2021 to to last year right and so this this was a very uh important decision to make and so basically a, lo- a lot of the uh first quarter was revolved around you know uh, getting that money in, right? And then so uh, given we're, we're still a relatively small team, right? We're, we're just under 20 people at the moment. We, um, and and so uh, th- th- there were only 1.5 sales and marketing FTE uh, at that time, a year ago, which which I'm, I was part of, uh, meant, you know, when you're starting to look at raising money, that doesn't mean that you can spend all of that time on sales and marketing, et cetera. So, so 2023 was kind of a, an interesting year uh, in the very first uh, two quarters, but we've, um, yeah, as I said, we've uh, we ended the year pretty strongly, um, signing signing new contracts, and with that with that one, you know, largest U.S. primary care provider as the as the cherry on the cake there. So we're we're all in all pretty pretty happy. Yeah. Yeah. So speaking of investors, Thomas, um, it looks like in in just some public searching here that uh, you've got investors based in Europe. And they invested in you in Brussels. How how are they feeling about you making the move to the U.S.? And uh, are you getting any any sort of pressure uh, to 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 continue to raise from European investors, or you're going to look to continue to raise from potentially U.S. investors, assuming you want to remain a venture back startup? Yeah. So we we actually a year ago talked to. So actually in 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 a little under three weeks, I talked to 120 investors because we wanted to run a really tight process uh i i had heard about these horror stories of founders you know taking six months seven months eight months to raise money we didn't want to do that so we ran an extremely tight process and we, we talked about i think 120 in our crm amazing uh over a three-week period which was wow. which was intense and a lot of them were actually us-based investors who who kind of almost uh, almost all of them said you know this is really interesting and we had already we had already our our first handful of us customers back then when we started to raise last year. Uh, but this amount has obviously grown, uh, you know, um, tremendously over 2023. But um, but but I think the signal was not good enough yet for a US-based investor to say, okay, this play is going to work in the US and we're now going to um, put money in this. But for for the European, you know, uh, VC uh, crop, it was it was more than signal enough. And so we had, uh, you know, we're really happy to uh, to have, uh, you know, the round being led by Octopus Ventures, who are actually known to invest in companies who are active both in the UK and in the US. So they, they are backers of uh, of Big Health, of uh, Quigenius that recently got rebranded to Pelago. And so, uh, yeah, we're super excited to have them as, uh, you know, lead of our round because they They're great. They, they know how, how it is to to have, you know, a healthcare company that operates on both sides of the pond. So, the, yeah. Yeah. I know um, Chantal Cox over oh, there. Yeah. yeah, indeed. I don't know if she's, she does a lot of healthcare and women's health. Yeah, yeah we're seeing yeah, them pretty, Chantal. yeah, no, go ahead, Hallie. I was just going to say, we've seen them pretty active. And I know in, in your experience, Hallie, you, you've seen them. I guess, so how did you structure it, Thomas? Because I was poking around on the Delaware Secretary of we, uh, State website. And, and I... I didn't find a well, are you guys a, a Brussels incorporated entity or maybe I, I didn't have the full name of the company. Yeah, no, no, no. So th- this is this is uh, so the, the, the structure of our company. So it's a it's a Belgian parent company with a U.S. subsidiary and the U.S. subsidiary was, uh, I think, founded November 22, if I'm correct. 
but the, the money obviously came into the uh, Belgian parent company, not into the U.S. Uh, subsidiary. We we looked at flipping that around as part of the race, or uh, actually in order to be more attractive for U.S. investment as well, because um, you know ultimately for them investing in in in, in a Belgian vehicle is something you know uh, exotic, right? Uh, and so. Uh, it, it could actually be one of the reasons why ultimately we did not have any, um, you know, uh, we did not go all the way to the end with with any USVC. Now the yeah, so that that's basically the structure. No, Belgian Topco with US. Subco. You're spot on, and and for the founders and entrepreneurs out there, I mean, there are already in this climate, especially enough hurdles to investment. Adding something additional by way of your corporate structure is not is not going to be helpful in that regard. So, yeah, yeah, Thomas, I think I'd encourage you to think about seeing if you could flip it. There's tax considerations to that. There's going to be both uh, Belgium tax considerations as well as potentially U.S. tax considerations, but. But I do think it will make it a little easier, reduce friction in an already high friction environment. Uh, so I definitely encourage you to so do we, that. We, we actually um, we actually really considered that and, and did, we did the full exercise with U.S. tax lawyers and Belgian tax lawyers. And it was going to be a half a million exercise. Uh, to, to execute payable to to the Belgium authorities or, or are you just talking about legal fees for the transaction? Legal fees. Wow. Well, we should talk because uh, that that strikes me as a bit a bit high uh, for the legal fee process. But maybe there's something. Obviously, I'm, I don't know Belgian law, yeah. and uh, there may be something there I'm not uh, yeah. familiar with. Coming back to the seed round, yeah. So, yeah so go for, ahead. All, for, go all, ahead. for all of the founders, for all of the founders listening, do not do not found a Belgian company. It's very unfortunate, you know. No, no. So Belgium is great for for you know beer, waffles, chocolates. Um, French fries. It's actually Belgian fries. Yeah. Right? It comes from Belgium, not from France. <laughs> we have to set that record straight. Absolutely. So great for food. Not so. It's it's not so great for founding companies. Um, there is actually a lot of small things that that you know make Belgium not the ideal place to found your company. And and the next the next time I I found a company, it will not be in a Belgian uh, a Belgian vehicle. Unfortunately, mm. yeah. it will be in California. <laughs> Who knows. So, so then coming back to the seed round then, Thomas, so given it was a Belgian entity, your investors came in and invested there, did you do it in the form of a safe or I'm not even sure under Belgian law how, how, how that would work, but is that, uh, is that the instrument you use to bring in the, uh, the octopus led round? No. So, so safes, for example, don't even exist. Yeah. Uh, that, that kind of uh, instrument doesn't exist. So it was a price round. Got it. Got it. So it, it probably mirrored a series A set of terms, okay. series A preferred set of terms. Seed, seed yeah, terms. Yeah. yeah, it was a seed round actually. Yeah, yeah. No, that. Yeah. And, and, how, how and I know that it's more total? common to raise a seed on a safe, indeed. But it was indeed, you know, it was a priced round, but with you know seed, seed kind of, you know. For sure. Uh, yeah. Things, yeah. How how much have you raised, Thomas? So this was a five million raise. How much have you raised total? Uh, there was a two million um, pre-seed raised in twenty twenty from uh, from a VC called Local Globe in uh, in UK. By the way, a five million dollar seed round in this market is is a larger seed round. So I'm not surprised. Even in the U.S., it might have been priced. <laughs> you know, the guidance I usually give to founders is if it's three million dollars U.S., of course, or less, uh, you know, try to put it on a safer convertible note. But if it's five million or more, you'll yeah. oftentimes get pressure from the VC to. 
price it. And that gray zone between three and five is, is, is where it can, it, it can be a jump ball. So, yeah. uh, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't beat yourself up too much that you priced it because it's certainly within the norm of what you might have seen. Maybe not in 2020 or 2021, but certainly in, you know, in 2023. And, and I think over the next few quarters, you'll see a lot of pressure. So real congrats to you, Thomas, because I, I think that's validation. And, and with this now, this large new customer contract you inked in Q4, uh, I suspect uh, if you're able to really prove it out, uh, you'll have a, a great Series A, hopefully into a Delaware C Corp and, and led by a, you know, a U.S.-based VC. We'll see. We'll see. I, I want to talk a little bit about being a global company because running a company in with customers around the world is really difficult. Um, and especially at your size, uh, as you mentioned earlier last year, you had one and a half salespeople. Now, how many do you have? Uh, almost four. Okay. Almost four. Um, but I'm curious, like why, why, why start globally? Why not just focus on the U S market reach, you know, a certain level of, um, you know, penetration here and then kind of move to another country. Yeah. So as I said, we, we started out as a bootstrapped company in Belgium, right? We, I mean, we had no network at all in, in healthcare. Uh, we had never built a software product, let alone sold it to, to a hospital or, or, a, you know, a care provider. And so, um, so th this was basically our home market, right? In, in hindsight, maybe, you know, we should have went immediately to the US. And so, so our, our, our basically our, our European hospital customer base is, is our legacy customer base. But what we find extremely interesting is that they are actually really adopting this kind of, you know, uh, future architecture that we have proposed to them, right? Because, because AWOL is ultimately a headless orchestration system that orchestrates, you know, things in your EMR, in your patient facing application, in, in, you know, into all these other tools that are already exist in your ecosystem. And so we were actually uh, anticipating that with the move to the US, we would see a lot of churn with our uh, European hospital based, you know, customer cohort, but actually th there has been some churn because we, we kind of almost you know, ignored their requests while we were effect, affecting that move into the US, but 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 a lot less than anticipated, which is great. And now they're all on board with this new vision, this new platform, and this new reality. And they, they and and they also see you know the value that we bring to the table. That that's what I was referring to earlier when I said that you know yeah. hospitals and and tech-enabled services providers might seem like they're on different side of the of the spectrum, but they really are not, uh, which is great. And and that's good for our vision because ultimately we want we want to see that market converge to one architecture, right? Because that's what. Uh, uh, will make our lives easier as a as a SaaS company. I just imagine your your tax process every year. Your managing employees globally is is not easy. Not probably not the easiest thing well, you do. All well, year. there you know the the pandemic has has had you know obviously it's it's negative consequences. But but we wouldn't be operating today if if the pandemic hadn't been there, right? Because for example, we're we're using an employer of record. Um, that makes it actually really easy to hire people around the globe and to to you know get all of that tech stuff uh, done w without us constantly having to you know keep operational people in the air just to manage that. So I have a I have an amazing head of operations who does that as only part of his responsibilities, right? And so it's actually a lot of that stuff is automated. And again, it it really 
uh, is made possible by by the, these kind of new services that that cropped up after the pandemic because all of these companies across the globe started you know to have remote people you know people were you know m- moving away from their home country to work somewhere else but they wanted to stay you know um uh still you know w- working uh and employed by their existing employers etc and so that is a new reality which actually makes it a lot easier to run a global operation uh like AOL. Would you recommend it to other founders? <laughs> it, you you have to you have to make a big uh you know decision there and and so the, um so we have actually an online uh handbook that describes our culture because we we have been um a distributed team from from very early on uh, uh, already from before the pandemic. And so we spend a lot of time um, creating our, our written culture. So we have a very, very strong written culture. We don't have a lot of meetings. Our culture is written out. Our, you know, our, our, you know, our drumbeat is written out, what we do when, et cetera, how we make decisions, uh, the principles we follow, the lenses we look uh, at t- to the world. All, all of those things are written out. And, and if you run a company where not everybody's co-located in the same office, it's almost a prerequisite to have this kind of set set of documents uh, that that exists and that lives, and that is that everybody buys into. Now, one of the amazing things is that a lot of the people we hired in in 2023 were actually attracted by this handbook. We 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 uh, put a link in the job descriptions, and people people start reading that handbook, and we were actually able to attract, you know, talent that I I didn't. I didn't expect that we would be able to attract uh, because of our size, right? We we have to, you know, compete with uh, uh, a couple of years ago with the Facebooks, now with the open eyes of the world for for you know the best the best talents, and so and so that handbook has has you know paid dividends again and again, uh, not just to operationalize our remote distributed team, but also to attract amazing uh, amazing talent. Yeah, it sounds like that written decision report process that you go through, Thomas, is really fundamental to the culture. But, but you know, there's only so much. There's nuance. There, there's lots of elements to culture that, that can't be written down. And so, you know, Hallie, this is a question for you, too. You know, what advice do you have for founders when trying to manage a distributed team like that? I mean, do you guys have weekly or, or monthly Zooms or, or how do you how do you complement that written word and 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 make sure that your culture is uh what you want it to be so we we limit the amount of plenary meetings uh in the company uh there's 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 only a few right we 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 meet on monday and we we end the week on friday with the show and tell um and then we have some you know operational meetings on a thursday that's it but but then for the rest we we really limit the amount of internal meetings we have um but we have a slack where we really encourage people to celebrate our values and the behaviors of our, our values. So we, we we don't have just high level values that are you know like empty sounding like you know ent- integrity, respect, etc. But we we created a list of uh, behaviors that we we encourage with each other and we would like to see with each other. And that if we see these behaviors, then people are living the culture. And so there's actually an, an active you know very very active celebrations channel in our Slack where we celebrate new customers coming in or, you know, new product that gets shipped, all, all of the classic celebrations. But people also celebrate when they see the behaviors of their colleagues uh, in, in, in day to day. And, and that, that is an enormous, you know, an enormous, uh, you know, um, yeah, uh, fire underneath that culture that just keeps on burning. Yeah. Hallie, curious in your experience. Yeah. I'm just curious what I, would you'd add I, to that. The only thing I would add to that is I think now we're at a place where, you can hire four folks who really thrive working remotely. 
And I think, you know, in the beginning of the pandemic, people that were not suited to working remotely were thrown into a working remotely world and it didn't work out for them. And there are a lot of folks who prefer in person. I have a lot of friends who really enjoy kind of the social aspects of of being in an office and have a hard time working remotely. And then there are other people like myself who really thrive when we can kind of control our own environment, set our own schedule. And I'm also like, I don't love meetings. Um, I have a very like written, I'm very much about documentation. Um, and so, you know, folks like me, if you can hire folks that have that sort of personality, I think companies can then really select for those who are going to thrive in your environment and really like appreciate the freedoms. Like, right now I'm recording out of the country and I get to do that and I still get my stuff done, but I don't have to be in an office. So I have, you know, that freedom and luxury. And so there's, I think people, there are people who like the upsides of working remotely and are willing to. Now, Michael, I'm curious, like if you're someone who could thrive in that, because I always, you're always in your office when you're recording. Every time I see you, we're at Fenwick. I'm just curious, um, you know, yeah, you know what's, it's, it's what's your work style? Howie, because I, I think it depends to your comment about the type of, uh, of business and, and, and the focus. I think there's a real apprenticeship model to professional services firms. And I think there's a, a real water cooler effect of one plus one equals three. And so we have found that uh, we're most collaborative uh, as a team when we're in person. Person. And so here at Fenwick, we certainly encourage, strongly encourage our colleagues to come in three days a week. And uh, I'm proud to say we've made great progress. So, so I, I, you know, I think it works really well if you can identify the types of talent that, that, that have the personnel like you do, Hallie. But at some point, Thomas, you're going to you're going to have a large team. Right. I mean, this is a really big idea. And I wonder if you're not going to need to have an in-person element, especially as you think about the the more junior people that you'll recruit onto the team. They're going to look for that mentorship, that guidance, that like, hey, I want to be part of a team. And and uh, and we see that here with our first year associates, for example. They they thrive on being here. They want to see their peers. They want to learn from the partners and senior associates. And so there is an element. I don't think they want to be here five days a week, but they certainly do want to be here two to three days a week. And so Thomas is just a challenge. Yeah, it'll be interesting. It be, interesting yeah. to see how it evolves. I think there's something too about where you are in your career. Like in my twenties, I wanted nothing more than to be in the rock health office. I remember, um, you know, just those serendipitous water cooler conversations. I was in the office seven days a week. Mm -hmm. I loved it. Um, and then I became a mom and then I, you know, I, I, I really wanted more independence, um, and, and kind of, you know, the pendulum swung for me. So I think there's something about life stage. And, um, so I know Thomas, you know, you're running a digital health company. I'm sure you have, people working for you at all stages in their career. And so for some folks, it might be easier than others. And I agree, like having doing like a, even if it's just annually, like everybody meet up somewhere cool, um, you can put the budget that you would have spent on office space around the world and love put it towards idea. like a really great, you yeah, know, annual idea. kickoff. Yeah. So we, we, we literally um, didn't renew the lease of our office because we had an office in Belgium until October, 2022. We, we didn't renew the lease and we just took that budget and we see each other live uh, twice every year. Fantastic. You know, in a, in a very oh, nice place in the, in the Belgian uh, Ardennes, which go. is, which is an amazing place. We went to Valencia um, to Barcelona. Amazing. So, That's right. We're well, coming Michael to the next and I will one. come to your we'll next host, in-person we'll meeting. V2 of this podcast <laughs> in, in Barcelona. I love it. We're in. Yeah. 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 But, 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 but you're yes, right that, that you know, nothing, um, you know, nothing 
can be exchanged for some time together, right? Cooking, cooking dinner together, and then having you know having a long conversation about something that is not healthy uh, together, and uh, you know doing doing stupid games together. Uh, and so we we really invest in that, but but in a different way. Just you know, two three days together in 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 remote location uh, instead of uh, in an office yeah. every day. Yeah, awesome. that's great. Well, Thomas, this was a really great conversation, and congrats on everything you did in 2023. And we look forward to following you in 2024. Thanks. Thank you both for making time. And that's closing time for today. A huge thanks to our partners at Fenwick for underwriting this show. Recording, editing, and audio mixing by Kyle Moore. Thanks to our guests and to you, our listeners, for joining us. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast so you never miss an episode. And check out our website, closingtimepodcast.com, for more exclusive content. Until next time, this is Hallie Teco and Michael Esquivel for Closing Time. 